The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Logan, don't shoot! You know my name? Logan Five. How do you know? We've been watching you. You're not like the rest of the Sandman. You've been asking questions. Sandman don't question the order of things. Logan, Carousel is death. No one is renewed. When you're 30, you'll die too. Unless you run for sanctuary. You're saying there is sanctuary? Yes. Outside. There's nothing outside. The air was poisoned in the nuclear war. Logan, that's part of the lie. To keep us in the Dome City. It's all right. The air's clear now. You caught him. Terminate, Logan. Francis, wait. Listen. And the girl. She must have been helping him. They say that people can live past 30 outside in sanctuary. They're lying to you. But what if there is sanctuary? And Carousel is a fraud. Logan, you've got a job to do. You're a sandman. Terminate them! London. It's Thursday, February 6, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will, where we will be with you from now to noon. <laughs> no, no, not right wing. <laughs> Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where our topic is going to be generally, I would say, Robert, mostly about provincial politics, really, although there's a lot of overlaps in other areas, wouldn't you say? A lot of money issues, and uh, we're going to start off with a very uh, a very sobering topic about death and, and Kathleen Wynne. Oh, uh, that's sobering. <laughs> I don't know which one's more sobering. <laughs> you shocked me with the second one more than the first one, actually. Yes. <laughs> So, um, anyway, to, to get us into that uh, topic, we are uh, joined today, at least for the first half hour of the show, with uh, none other than a, uh, Paul McKeever, who has been a guest on this show several times, personal friend and leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. Are you there, Paul? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Great. <laughs> okay. So, Paul, we started off today's show with a bit of a clip from Logan's Run, and it's, we did that because you have been calling a, um, a proposal in Kathleen Wynne's budget or proposed budget, um, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you describe to us exactly why uh, we're, we had played Logan's <laughs> run at the beginning of this show? <laughs> sure thing. Well, uh, you know, uh, if, we, if we turn our minds back to the Drummond Report, mm -hmm. this is where this all started. The Drummond Report came in a, a year or three ago, uh, basically said that uh, here's a number of suggestions about how to balance the budget. It was all about balancing the budget and keeping the, bu the budget balanced. One of the proposals in there, Recommendation 5-70, basically said, well, I'll read it, it said, all family health team physicians must begin engaging in discussions with their middle-aged patients about end-of-life care. And it said at a table showing, here's what we do now, and here's what we should do. On the left, what we do now was, oh, you know, uh, taking care of people for weeks as they slowly die in the hospital. What they should do instead, have prearranged end-of-life agreements. That's code for, 
you would sign up, uh, like they have a, an act in Quebec right now that recently has been brought in. Mm-hmm. You would sign up in advance saying, if I can't speak, if I can't say yes or no, if it uh, appears that I'm not going to get any better, just give me a lethal injection. And there, there literally is an act brought in in June of 2013 in Quebec, an act respecting end-of-life care. And basically all you have to do to, to, um, to uh, get a lethal injection there is say, uh, sign a document saying, uh, yeah, kill me, or have someone else do it for you. It doesn't even have to be someone special. They don't have to have power of attorney or, any, or anything. Just if you're incapable of doing it for yourself, a third person can sign the form instead. As shocking as it sounds, that's literally what the Act itself says, if you can read it online. So right after that Act was uh, introduced in June, none other than Kathleen Wynne weighed in and said, oh, you know, we, I think it raises enor- enormous questions. It's a national discussion. We have to have this. It's going to happen across the country. And, uh, you know, in other words, she was saying, yes, we have, to, we have to look at doing this thing that was also recommended in the Drummond Report. Who, who chimed in right after that? Oh, none other than the PC leader. Tim Hudak, yes, we've got to have, we should strike a committee, he said, to uh, look into this. And then the, the NDP came forward and said, yes, oh, yes, we must look at this. So basically you have the three parties in the legislature all saying we should set up a law that allows people to, when they're healthy and young and middle-aged, to agree that if they can't speak, if they can't, uh, you know, if they get injured or they get sick or they get old, well, they sign up in advance for a lethal injection. Now, there's nothing wrong on the face of it with having what you might say is a, a living will and instructions regarding your capacity um, and, and end-of-life issues, is there? I mean, what makes this particular one reprehensible? Well, you're absolutely right. There's nothing wrong if someone wants to take their life or end their life. That's up to them. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have no objection. I don't think it's the thing, you know, thing that a lot of people should do. Sometimes it's done uh, inappropriately. But the, there's two things that I think are objectionable to this. When you're middle-aged and 45, you have absolutely no idea what state you're going to be in when you're, say, 79 or 85, and someone says, oh, look, this piece of paper from 30 years ago says stick them with a needle. You might not even remember you did it. And if you, d- and if you do remember, you might not be able to say, hey, I've changed my mind in the last 30 years. Now, the, what's mostly reprehensible of the, about this, of course, is that the motivation we're talking about this is monetary. Yes. The government, in a budgetary context, is saying we can save money in health care because the majority of the money that people spend in health care or consume is in the last two weeks of their life. So the government's looking to this and saying, hey, let's knock them off instead. And that's literally the subtext of all of this. It's in a budgetary document, the Drummond Report, that they're making a recommendation that people sign up for lethal injections 30 years in advance. There's yeah. another compulsion here as well. Sorry about There's another compulsion here as well, and that is that they will make it obligatory for healthcare professionals to bring this up, and it would be ob- they would be obliged to do this under that's, government that's right. Yeah, That's okay. right. The, the physician know, would actually be required to do this. And this is, again, coming out of a budgetary document, not out of a healthcare document of any sort. Am I right on that? You're absolutely right. This is not about compassion for for um, patients. It's not about sweeping away old old views on on taking one's life or ending one's life. That's not it. It's about getting people to decide 30 years in advance what they later on won't be able to revoke because they can't speak. Now, a lot of what you are talking about here has been printed and is available online at the freedomparty.on.ca um, website called the 2014 Opposition Budget. 
uh, Freedom Party of Ontario's balanced budget plan. And in that, you talk about this particular uh, concern and you say, and I particularly like this, the role of government, first and foremost, is to defend every every individual's life, liberty, and property, encouraging healthy middle-aged people to sign up for lethal injections so as to balance the government's budget runs contrary to the purpose of government. I'd say that's well put. Is, is there not some, I, I don't know, the way they're approaching this, does this not almost speak to the fact that they're not going to be doing anything about the budget in the future? I mean, they're not going to fix it? Because <laughs> well, if this it, is the kind of action that they see as necessary, clearly they don't have any plans to fix the budget itself. Well, they clearly don't. Not one of the three parties in the legislature right yet has proposed uh, any specific way to balance the budget. They all say they're going to do it by 2017, 2018, uh, and then later on, I guess, Tim Hudak changed his mind. He says, well, we'll do it at least one year earlier, but he still doesn't have a plan. He's got about 200 pages of these documents he calls Paths to Tomorrow or Paths to Prosperity. And if you read through them, you'll, you'll only find one sentence in the entire 200-page collection that talks about balancing the budget and how he would do it. And it says, don't worry, we'll come up with a plan just before the next election. That's what he says. So well, according to, Dr- according to the Drummond Report, there cannot be a balanced budget until that's 2031. That, that, that's correct, unless you take radical action, you know, years ago when he said to do all these various things, and even then he couldn't be certain. But what we did in the, in the Freedom Party opposition budget is we've laid out the five things that always get talked about as, you know, by the politicians in, in Queen's Park as the things they're going to do. Like, well, we won't touch health care, welfare, or uh, education. We'll actually increase spending on those things, but we'll find waste and cut red tape and all that kind of stuff to balance the budget. Well, we show in the, in the opposition budget that that is literally impossible because 100%, 100% of all tax revenues in the province, so provincial tax revenues, I'm not talking about federal revenues, provincial tax revenues, 100% is consumed by three things, health care, education, and interest payments on the debt. In fact, it's more than consumed. And everything else the government does, from justice to, to uh, Aboriginal uh, ministry to the, to the uh, agricultural ministry, all of that stuff, 23 other ministries are, uh, are paid for with borrowed money or with federal transfers, or a little bit of it is paid by, you know, when you get a licensing uh, fee handed to you for uh, sure. renewing your driver's license. So basically, they've got no plan because they're unwilling to tackle the, the elephant in the room. And that's why there's an elephant actually balancing on the, on, on the lawn of the uh, Queen's Park on the cover of our opposition budget. The elephant in the room is health care. It consumes 60% of all the provincial tax revenues. And unless you deal with that fact and deal with the fact that it's also uh, increasing in, in size, uh, it's consuming more and more every year, you cannot balance the budget. It's literally mathematically impossible. That's why no one's talking about balancing the budget, of course, because they all know it would involve talking about health care yeah. And, and re- reforming it in some way. You have a great quote in the um, document. It said, Ontario must decide whether its goal is to provide for the health of the government health care monopoly or to provide for the health of patients. So exactly. the focus has to be on the health of the patients and not maintaining that monopoly. And in any provincial party that doesn't want to tackle health care as a budgetary item or to do something about the cost of it is never, ever going to balance the budget. That's exactly right. They've created, you know, and it's really, we, we've put in for the benefit of people who maybe are, they can't really believe it, but we put in news items um, just to show people that from the very beginning of the, of the health care monopoly, and that's, it only started in 1969. Before that, there were lots of different insurers, including there was a non-profit insurance uh, group that was made up of physicians in the province. 
and people just bought um, they, you know, from their choice of insurance uh, providers. But in 1969, the federal government said, hey, what if we paid for half your health care? All you have to do is set up a monopoly. And the PC said, yeah, that's great. And so that the, the, the provincial progressive conservatives literally banned all private health insurance, set up the OHIP monopoly, and said, uh-oh, how are we going to pay for this? Oh, I know. Let's introduce some more tax. So for the first time in Ontario history, we had a uh, provincial-level income tax. We didn't have an income tax before 1969 because we didn't need it. Mm-hmm. We need it only because of health care. And now, as we see, um, you know, it, the health care has grown and consumed more and more to the point where literally every dollar of production tax that is imposed in the province, so that's, you know, the health care premium, the provincial income tax, the em- employer health uh, tax, and so on, these ones that are taxes not on what you've consumed but on what you've produced, all that money, historically, all that money keeps going to health care. So it's nope. a transfer from those who earn to everybody everybody in general. That's basically what it is. Right, sort of sharing the wealth there, right? Moving That's the money right. around. And, and yeah. But, but the, the, the problem with the system is that it's eternally in crisis, maybe even by design. Uh, we have images in the... Paul, in Paul the what, you, what you just said, maybe by design, I, I honestly believe that's what it is. And, sure. And I can't for a minute believe the politicians who know what you and I know, and they have to know this, can be operating in any sort of good faith with us at all. I just don't believe it for a second. Well, we're no, they've, they've, they've seen it as a way, because it's, it's life or death for many people, it's certainly pain and suffering. It's the way where nobody can ever say, I want to, I want to spend less. And so they've got themselves a perfect mechanism for redistributing wealth to doctors, uh, to uh, all the people who work in those hospitals, to all the people who will then give money to those political parties to keep them in power. And these crises stem right back from the beginning. I've got a photo in this uh, 2014 budget, staring at it right now. It's dated February 18, 1970. Headline, Social Service Bills Too High, Trudeau, Costs Must Be Cut. And it reads at the beginning, that Prime Minister Trudeau said yesterday Ottawa would launch a nationwide drive to hold down spending on Medicare, hospital, welfare, and federally assisted education programs. He said the drive is necessary because of a really appalling, quote-unquote, really appalling, anticipated increase in expenditures on these programs. Uh, that's 1970, one year after the program was instituted. Not much has changed. Paul, I know you have a client at the bottom of the hour, but if you can hold on, we're just going to have a little break here for a smile, and then when we come back, let's just talk about exactly what you propose for Ontario's health care system. So we'll, we'll be back right after this. Mm. Bird! Oh, Bird, what do you have there, Bird? Uh, oh, yeah, nothing, Bert, Ernie. That, nothing. that looks like a cookie, huh? Bird. Uh, no, Ernie. Yeah. That's a cookie, and boy, am I hungry. Ernie, 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 ho, 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 Dad. Oh, Bird, what? Not so fast. This cookie is for me. Mm. Bird, but just, just a second, Bird. What? I think, Bird, that we have a problem. No, no, I yes, don't. Yes, yes, we do, Bert. You see, uh, just a second, Bert. No, no, don't. My cookie. That. No, you see, Bert, you want to eat the cookie, and yeah. I want to eat the cookie. So what uh, do we do about it, Bert? Well, uh... I, I have the answer. You do? Yes. We will share the cookie, Bert. I have an answer. Hmm? No, we won't. Bert, 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 just a second, Bert. You wouldn't share that cookie with your very best friend, Bert? Ernie, I've I been saving this ears, cookie Bert. all day for me. Oh, but Bert, no, 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 Bert. Just, just, just a moment. Just a minute, Bert. Now listen, Bert, if this what? were my cookie, 
If this no. were my cookie, I would share it with you, Bert. No, you if wouldn't. If that cookie belonged to me, I would share it with you. No, you wouldn't. Uh, Bert, just a minute. I'll prove well, it. Ha, ha, ha. Just, just, just a second, Bert. Now listen. Just pretend like this cookie is mine, see? Now you ask me if I will share the cookie with you. You took that cookie from me. I, I just want to demonstrate. <sighs> all right, all right, all right. Uh, what do I do? Just ask me if I'll share it with you, Bert. Uh, all right, um, this is silly. Ernie. Yes, Ernie. Sir? Would you share that cookie with me? Why, yes, Bert. I'd be happy to share it with you. Here you go. One half for me and one half for you, Bert. See there? I told you I would share it with you, Bert. That's what friends are for, Bert. Thanks a lot, Bert. Hey, Bert, would you share that half a cookie with me? <laughs> I love that particular clip from Bert and Ernie and Sesame Street because it illustrates what I think is indicative of the Ontario taxpayer. They want to keep their cookie, they want to keep their money, and yet somebody comes along and bamboozles them into giving it up, and they don't know what happened. That just <laughs> describes Ontario's taxpayers today. We're on the line with Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. And, Paul, can you describe... Um, in your opposition budget document, what you propose for Ontario's health care system, how would you change it? Competition and choice, not privatization, you say. That's right. So the problem with, with uh, OHIP, which is the insurer uh, in our health care system, is that it has no competition. So it can charge anything it wants. Um, you know, uh, basically the, the uh, medical system says, we want more money. The government says, well, we want you to keep voting for us and supporting us. So sure. Um, that's not how things work in most other endeavors. You know, people sell shoes, they, you sell for 200 the other guy sells for 100 If the t- shoes are basically the same quality, you'll buy the $100 shoe. Uh, we need competition in health insurance as well, also a variety of, of different uh, offerings. Some people won't want to pay the extra money needed for, you know, massage and, and uh, itchy skin and eye, eye uh, exams. Others will want to, for example, just to, to cover uh, the event, in the event of a heart attack or cancer or uh, a major, or as they say, a catastrophic loss. So we want to produce a system where you can buy, you know, everything under one roof or just the, just the critical care, uh, pay accordingly, and pay in a competitive system where, you know, the, the, the person with the lowest price is going to benefit. Now, to do this, though, you basically have to say OHIP will no longer be a tax-funded organization, it will be a crown corporation funded solely by the premiums it gets from those people who choose to continue buying it. Um, but people might not want to buy OHIP, they might want to buy from some other insurer, in which case their money will go to that insurer instead. Uh, as a result of um, that switch, though, you would basically say, since we're no longer funding tax, uh, tax funding OHIP, we would end the, the um, or decrease the, uh, the tax burden so that people will still have the money in their hand. And so we propose basically getting rid of uh, the, the multitude of, of uh, little taxes that we have on things like fuel and gasoline and, and uh, tobacco and et cetera, rolling it all into just, just the HST would be the only provincial tax. It would be collected as it is now by the, the uh, Canada Revenue Agency. There would be a small increase to the tax to do that, but there would no longer be a provincial uh, income tax or a gasoline tax, et cetera, just the HST. Uh, so... You know, the, the price we can estimate for premiums to OHIP right now, the cost is, per capita, $3,515. Mm-hmm. That would continue to be the price. 
So no one would be behind in, in, in this respect. It's not as though you couldn't buy OHIP, and it's not as though it would cost you any more than it already does. And you take, um, you take care, more or less, of the uh, people who are unemployed or at least on social assistance by giving them a voucher, I understand? Uh, that's right. So, you know, we want to make sure everyone has the, the freedom to choose. And, of course, there are people in Ontario who simply cannot work, simply cannot earn the $3,500 per year that it costs to ensure their health. And so we, what we have done is, uh, one of the components here is to, is to eliminate all-day kindergarten, mm-hmm. to eliminate the uh, Ontario Clean Air Benefit, and re- redirect some of that savings. For example, the savings from not, no longer collecting all those taxes is, is about a half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And also the, uh, the $1 billion uh, Ontario Clean Air Benefit, by cancelling that, we can redirect $1.5 billion dollars uh, to the purpose of making sure that the uh, disabled, those on disability and who can't earn uh, a living, still have the money they need uh, to purchase OHIP or a, comp- a competing um, insurer. Paul, I have a question for you that, that uh, I'm not sure how you're going to answer. I, we haven't even discussed this personally between each, each other. But sure. y- you're, you speak of this, uh, say, $3,500 per year premium for people to be on OHIP to continue right. get receiving it. That's OHIP as it is today, correct? That's correct. Which means it's almost like free coverage from first dollar coverage on. Is that correct? That's right. There'd be so no... Uh, no deductible or anything. That's right. Exactly so, the same. So do you env- envisage within the OHIP system, without having to run outside of it, to, to buy different types of premiums? I don't want to have my health care paid for. I don't want to have my first $20 uh, you know, visit to the doctor paid for. I only want to cover the serious stuff, you know, cancer, heart attacks, things that would put you in the hospital. Would that provision occur within OHIP? as well as competitive fields? I mean, we ha- uh, maybe you haven't even looked that far ahead yet, but d- would you see it working that way? Well, the, the one thing that OHIP would have on its shoulders that the other insurers would not would be that it would have to comply with the Canada Health Act. That's right. You know, for Ontario to continue receiving federal funds, we have to have at least one system that's open to all, regardless of health conditions, uh, that, and that everyone has to pay the same amount. It's equally accessible, et cetera. It doesn't say how you have to pay doesn't say it has to be tax-funded. doesn't say it has to be a, a government monopoly. It just says the province has to have at least one system, a, one government system, uh, yeah, available to people, and uh, the, the uh, terms have to be the same for everyone in terms of accessing it. So OHIP would have to make sure that they didn't charge one amount for one person and another for another. I'm glad you uh, brought that up, yes, Paul, because very, uh, uh, <laughs> the first <laughs> argument anybody out there is going to give you regarding touching OHIP whatsoever or allowing for private competition is that it would violate the... Canada Health Act, the CHA, which you have outlined in your budget proposal, does no such thing. And you go through it step by step in a very, in a way a lawyer would, as you are a lawyer. <laughs> sure. And, and you identify very clearly that privatization, a two-stream system, one with um, the government insurer OHIP and other uh, system where people can opt out of it, would not in any way violate the Canada Health Act. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. All, all the Canada Health Act is, is, a, is a document that says these are the terms pursuant to which the government might choose uh, not to give you uh, federal money. Basically, it's a money bill, and it, and it says we'll give the province money, provided that it has at least one health care system and that, it, and that that health care system meets these criteria. It doesn't say that every health care system within the province has to meet the criteria, just one. And um, that's what OHIP does. So it would continue to run that, uh, be that function. The other thing is that, you know, in terms of the efficiency of OHIP, that would be up to those administering OHIP. I, I don't claim to be a hospital administrator, 
there are already people administering OHIP right now. I think they probably would be the exact same people that would continue to do it when OHIP was a crown corporation instead of a government expense. Mm-hmm. Now, if anybody wants to see your uh, 11-point plan on how to balance the budget in 2014, where can they find that? Uh, they just go to the Freedom Party website, so that's uh, freedomparty.on.ca, and they'll see the slider in the top right corner. That'll uh, it'll show this elephant uh, <laughs> standing on his nose on the, on the lawn of Queen's Park. Mm-hmm. That's the document. They click on that, and uh, they'll be able to then choose. You can actually, if you want to, by the way, we give a choice. You can look on, on screen and click the links and get all the evidence for yourself to convince yourself that the numbers are all legitimate. But there's also an option there for those who are a little bit more uh, activist, let's say, to actually print copies of it themselves through a professional printer or through uh, a large, eight, uh, what do they call it, an 11 by 17 printer, and make booklets that they can hand out at uh, all candidates' meetings and whatnot. All I right. have to say, just as an aside to you guys, mm-hmm. I, I want to express my extreme uh, disappointment with the uh, CAA, and that's, I know we're not talking about the budget here, the CAA, the Canadian Automobile Association, which has communicated to our, cli- er, to our candidate in the riding of Thornhill that she will not be permitted to join the stage with the PC, Liberal, NDP, and Green parties. People sometimes wonder, how come I've never heard of your party? Well, it's because of organizations like the CAA who deliberately try to prevent people from knowing who the Freedom Party is, who the candidate is, what we have to offer. I hope that anybody who has CAA coverage right now will email or write or, or uh, call the CAA and complain about, about the exclusive anti-democratic um, goings-on that are going on in the Thornhill by-election, uh, and right today, in fact, is tonight is the, uh, the debate. It's absolutely abominable. It has no place in a democratic uh, Ontario. I'm glad you brought that up, Paul, and there's another election, by-election going on, too, that you're running a, a fielding a candidate in, too, correct? That's right. In, in Niagara Falls, we have Andrew Brannan, an mm-hmm. excellent candidate who knows quite a bit about the health care system, being a nurse. And, uh, and then we have Aaron uh, Goodwin in Thornhill, who will be at the meeting, but will be forced to sit like a leper in the crowd. Isn't and I something? think everybody who, who sh- who's in Thornhill who might be listening to this uh, online uh, should really go there and demand that she join the stage with the rest of the candidates. Well, graceful. I'll tell you, CAA is going to be hearing from me as soon as this show is over. Paul, thank you for joining us today. I know you've got a client to join now, and we've mostly talked about the elephant in the room, not all the other budgetary items that are available there. So <laughs> again, right. everyone can uh, check that out. Thanks for joining us today, thank Paul. You, Paul. Oh, thank and you. We'll follow up later. Now, for the rest of the show, we've maybe start now. We've got two fractured fairy tales for our listeners today, Robert. And the first is <laughs> a lot coming of cartoons up today on yes. that for our clips. <laughs> uh, well, fractured fairy tales were a regular feature of the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon series, and they were just wonderfully narrated by Edward Everett Horton. And fractured as it is, this following fairy tale nevertheless carries a powerful message despite the fractured ending. I call this one The Lion's Gratitude, and we'll be back. It was once spoken that gratitude is a quality not limited to man. Though just why it was spoken, no one has ever been quite certain. For at the time of the saying, there lived a poor slave named Androcles. My friends call me Andy. However, he was seldom called Andy because... I don't have any friends. Androcles was owned by a wealthy merchant who treated him cruelly and forced him to work very hard. From morning till night, he did the cooking, made the bed, scrubbed the floors and mended his master's torn togas. And for the tiniest little mistake, he was punished severely. Hold still, master. Uh, There's a fly on your nose. Don't hit him with that, you idiot. You'll hurt me. Get the fly spray. Yes, master. 
Got him. All right, that did it. Now you know what's going to happen to you. No, no, Master. Not that. Ah, but the merchant showed him no mercy. I can't stand another minute of this inhuman punishment. I'll run away, and I'll search the world for someone who will give me gratitude for what I do. And so he did. For that very night, as his master lay sleeping, he stole out of the house and scurried away into the darkness. The next morning, Androcles was deep in the forest where he was certain his master would never find him. He was walking along his merry way when suddenly a voice called to him from a dense thicket. Ho oh there, stranger! Ho yourself, who speaks? It is I! Androcles found himself face to face with the biggest, fiercest looking lion he had ever seen. He was terrified and turned on his heels to flee and would have gotten away but for a huge tree that slightly blocked his path. Certain that the lion was upon him, he looked over his shoulder but noticed that the beast was simply lying there moaning and whimpering piteously. What seems to be the trouble? I have a vicious thorn in my paw, and it hurts me terribly. Please have pity. Pull it out for me. Are you kidding? If I got that close to you, you'd grab me and eat me up. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Honest Injun, remove the thorn. I will be your friend for life. The poor beast's pleadings were so convincing, and he seemed so sincere, that Androcles decided to take a chance. Careful now, careful! Hold still! Ooh! The lion was overjoyed with relief and thanked Androcles profusely. You know, I really feel he's grateful. Oh, I am grateful. Androcles was very pleased, for he had finally earned gratitude for something he had done. He bid the lion farewell and went on his way. Several days later, however, fate struck Androcles a cruel blow, for he was captured by soldiers and taken to the city and thrown into the dungeon. It was there that he learned that he was to be used in the circus. Being in the circus isn't too bad. I mean, maybe they'll let me be a clown. It isn't that kind of a circus, friend. They're gonna throw you to the lion. This is sure gonna ruin my summer. The following day, the stands were filled, and the emperor and all his court came to view the spectacle. A hush fell over the arena. Androcles trembled. The signal was given. The steel door creaked open and with a mighty roar, <coughs> a gigantic ferocious lion bounded into the arena. The beast had been kept without food for several weeks to make him even more fierce and he shook his great head with rage. The quaking Androcles prepared to meet his fate when suddenly he recognized the lion as the same one from which he'd removed the thorn. A wave of relief swept over him as he shouted, Leo, wait! It's me, Andy! Do you remember me? Uh, yeah, yeah. You took the thorn out of my paw. Right! And you were grateful because I did you a favor, so now you won't eat me. <laughs> I sure am hungry. I know, but you still won't eat me. I'm your friend. They didn't feed me for two weeks. But you still won't eat me, will you? <laughs> 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 Will you? <gasps> Lion, one, Androcles. Oh, dear, dear, dear. So as you can plainly see, dear friends, the moral to this story is that if you ever do a favor for a great beast with long teeth and sharp claws and he tells you that he will be forever grateful, don't you believe him. Because you can just bet your boots <laughs> that he's a lion.
Dinner ready, sweetheart? In a minute, Fred. Go sit down. You know, Wilma, I've been feeling wonderful this past week. Must be because I haven't seen that ungrateful neighbor of ours, Barney Rubble. Ungrateful? How come? I'll tell you how come. I figured that Barney wasn't getting paid enough. So last week, I went to see his boss. I told him I was Barney's agent. And boy, did I lay it on the line. Laid what on the line, Fred? Well, I told him I was collective bargaining for Barney. And unless Barney collected a lot of retroactive pay, the bargain was over. Then I told Barney to put his broom down and go see his boss. And then what? I haven't seen that ingrate Barney since. He's probably living it up in that big fat raise I got him. <laughs> Who cares? Just not seeing him around is worth it. It's water over the bridge. Nothing could get me mad. Not the way I feel. Nothing. Wilma! What happened to the dinosaur steak I brought home last night? Well, if you must know, I gave it to Betty and Barney. Betty and Barney? That's right. So, it isn't enough I get the guy more dough. He's got to sponge off my wife when my back is tired. I'm going to go see that sponge and squeeze his ungrateful head. Fred? Just a minute. Get away from that door, Wilma. My chivalry is getting thin. And that's the only thing about you that is getting thin. Now you listen to me, Blabbermouth. The reason I gave them the steak is because they haven't had a decent meal all week. They're too proud to ask for help, but the truth is they're flat broke. Broke? Well, what's Barney doing with all that money I got him? Are you kidding? All you got him was a place in the unemployment line. Huh? After you got through shooting off your big mouth to Barney's boss, he fired Barney. Gee. I, I was only trying to help. Well, you better think of something that will help Barney or you'll be eating smelts all month. Okay, Wilma. I'll, I'll, I'll think of something. Gee. Me and my big mouth. Well, if anyone was made for union representation, it has to be Fred Flintstone. <laughs> <laughs> well said, yeah. Uh, uh, and again, his experience there was very much like what many unions here in Canada have had. In fact, I understand that out of the last ten auto plants that were shut down in Canada, nine of them were unionized. So that should tell us something. Kathleen Wynne has recently raised the minimum wage in Ontario again to take effect in June 1st, I think it is. And uh, it's now up to $11 an hour from the 10.25, and it just strikes me that they obviously know that this is not good for the province, and yet they do it. Why do they do this kind of a thing? We don't need a minimum wage. I've said that many times. Heard an interesting caller on uh, one of the other stations the other day. Obviously, a union fella named Clyde, who, who referred to unions being the strength and solidarity to the Canadian worker. And he went up to his point and said that $30 an hour wage currently being paid to the Toyota folks is peanuts. And he calls the company greedy. $30 an hour is kind of a chintzy wage to be making these days, he said. I wouldn't work for that wage. I'll tell you that. If they want to pay peanuts, they're going to get chimps, he said. <laughs> and with that statement, Clyde, the union man, just blew away any argument for legislated minimum wages. Right out of the water. For him, 
$30 an hour is already below his personal minimum wage. And no one even had to legislate it. But of course, for you, unions think you need the legislation, right? Because it's you that they want to keep out of the marketplace. And then I heard an interesting interview last week, Friday, um, with, you know, in light of Kathleen Wynne's disastrous hiking of the legal minimum wage in Ontario, and uh, along with a permanent escalation of the same based on inflation, yet another government tax. I listened to a brief interview on Andy Utman's show last Friday with Maclean's Magazine's Chris Sorensen regarding his current article on Germany's low unemployment rate and its high manufacturing rate. And the conversation to me was, was a comedy of omission. Here, here they were talking about jobs, creating jobs, and he says, you know, Sorensen says our local job market is, is experiencing, quote, people without jobs and jobs without people. And then he said something even curiouser. Quote, given our North American values, it is doubtful that Ontario or Canada would ever emulate what Germany does, he said. He focused the conversation on career paths and actually suggested, if I was reading him right, that the choice of working and remaining at one stable manufacturing job for most of one's life is not a Canadian value in some way, which was a little odd for me to hear since I know I have lots of radio recordings of people who have been on unemployment and say they've been working at their company for years and years, like for decades. So, you know, is is that no longer a career choice? Do you know people who want to, you know, live or, or work in one place in a factory and are happy with that? I know a lot of them. There's there's just many you know? choices and in in, in opinions about how people want to work as there are people. Mm-hmm. You can't peg them down. Yeah, it's so I don't know why they make statements like this. But as always, there's an elephant in the room that no one talks about, and that's what the real values issue, I think, was all about and why we wouldn't possibly emulate Germany and that is its absence of minimum wage laws, about which no mention was made in the whole discussion called the German way <laughs> on, on uh, unemployment. And Germany is among seven European nations with no minimum wage laws. The Cato Institute, Steve Hankey, provided these brief stats and charts on January 30th, and I brought one of the charts with me. You want to take a look mm-hmm. at it here? It's pretty obvious. But he writes... I'll hold it up to the microphone. Yeah, sure. But you can see, I mean, there's not even... They don't even touch the two lines, Mm -hmm. right? President Obama set the chattering classes abuzz after his unilateral announcement to raise the minimum wage, writes Hankey. During the State of Union address, he sang praises for his action, saying that it's good for the economy, it's good for America. Yet this conclusion doesn't pass the economic smell test, he says. Just look at the data from Europe. There are seven European countries with no minimum wage. Austria, Cyprus, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Italy, and Sweden. If we compare the levels of unemployment in these countries with EU countries that impose a minimum wage, the results are clear. Minimum wage leads to higher levels of unemployment. In the 21 countries with with a minimum wage, the average country has an unemployment rate of 11.8%, whereas the average unemployment rate in nations without a minimum wage is about 7%. There's a definite one-to-one correlation on the graph you just showed me between uh, those with uh, minimum wage, those without, and the unemployment rate. Those without always have a lower unemployment rate. Of course, and doesn't that make sense? I mean, it's just logical. And, uh, you know, he, said, he writes, Nobel, uh, Nobelist Milton Friedman said it best when he concluded that the real tragedy of minimum wage laws is that, there's a, that they are supported by well-meaning groups who want to reduce poverty. But the people who are hurt most by high minimums are the most poverty-stricken, end quote. Well, um, 
You know, I think he's kind of missed the essential point by excusing it through Milton Friedman. This is basically my theme for this half hour, Robert. I'm personally past this point he missed. I think the people who promote and advocate minimum wages are not well-meaning groups or anyone who wants to reduce poverty. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Let's stop saying that they're well-meaning. It just lets them off the hook so they can do the, the Kathleen Wynne thing and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then carry on and intentionally destroy, go, go on and destroying things without having to be held accountable for it. Not for a second was Wynne sorry, nor did she or her government mean for anything to turn out any different than it has. It was the plan. You know, well-meaning, like, on any issue, give me a break. Our own Ontario government is Exhibit A. You know, I was just listening to all this growing despair and desperation in the people who are discovering, you know, everything from unsightly windmills blighting their countryside on the one hand, while on the other, average folks are terrified by their electric bills. And this was not by accident and was fully supported by a majority of Ontario voters. And polls suggest that this is still the case for Ontario Liberals. They're coming back. People are still voting for them. They love these high prices. This isn't happening because, oh, it's an accident or we don't know what we're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. So, you know, you can really... Listen to the people in our emergency hospitals. What a disaster that is. How can that go on? And we have people in government who are still allowed to be there. It just amazes me. Minimum thinking, writes Peter Foster in the January 29th uh, National Post. I loved his, his, his major comments. Minimum wages are morally repugnant, absolutely. Minimum wage legislation is the prime example of the left's resolute blindness to the laws of economics and its commitment to authoritarian collectivist morality. Oh, my God. That one part sounds a little Ayn Randish, doesn't it? (laughs) To read this in a national newspaper is pretty good. (laughs) Well, again, though, he's, he's again talking about the left's resolute blindness to the laws of economics, right? I don't think they're blind. I think they know exactly what they're doing. You know, if I could just jump in here, you're talking about their willful destruction of jobs and that they are not well-intentioned. I'd have to agree with you. If if anybody's well-intentioned, they may make a mistake. You point out their mistake, they'd never do it again. They'll apologize. But even though the data on minimum wages clearly demonstrates that if you raise a minimum wage, or even if you have a minimum wage, you are putting people out of work. You always will. That is a fact that is well demonstrated by the data. So for them to increase the minimum wage is intentional. It's just downright evil. It cannot be called well-intentioned. It is it, it is a tool for them to get elected by identity politics. They are going after a particular group, that is the union people, who are wanting to drive people out of the marketplace so that they, they can have their high wages. That's exactly what it's all about. These people are evil. And, and, and there's no two ways about it. You know, and yet Peter Foster writes that the minimum wage mentality implies that employers are underpaying and thus unfairly exploiting their most vulnerable workers, which explains why it is so fondly embraced by those who love to condemn capitalism as the reign of heartless greed, end quote. Again, I think that's incorrect. I think the minimum wage mentality is driven by motivations that have nothing to do with fairness, taxation, or any other magical non-existent economic boogeyman. It's driven by wanting something for nothing and achieved by circumventing the consent of the employer through the use of government as the instrument of extortion. Outside of a free market, that's all it can be. It can't be anything else. Now, He writes, to the extent that minimum wages hurt those they are intended to help, they are immoral. I'm going, no, that's wrong. No, 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 they're immoral the minute you violate the consent of any of the participants. 
Consider the ramifications of that statement. Therefore, if minimum wages actually help those that, that they intended to help, then they would still be immoral, wouldn't they? It wouldn't make any difference. But as Nobel laureate Merton H. Miller noted, this destructive economic fallacy, quote, sure plays well in the opinion polls. That's another issue well, that I'm glad you brought up, uh, and that is that this has always been talked about in economic terms, jobs, yes. money, wages, salaries. Right. And yet... The elephant in the room in this case is the intrusion in a private negotiation between an employer and an employee. If an employee wants to make less than $11 an hour and an employer wants to to uh, pay less than $11 an hour, who are Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals and or PCs or the NDP to say otherwise? That is an intrusion. That is a violation of their right to associate, their right to contract. Exactly. There's no economic fallacy here. It's a moral fallacy. Moral. Yes, right? it is immoral. William Watson writes in the post, uh, evidence-free minimum wage policy, and he points out how the report of Ontario's minimum wage advisory panel that led to Ontario government's decision to index its minimum wage retroactively to 2010, can you imagine, mm. and add a few cents to round it up to $11, was actually not a bad piece of work, he said. Well, I could spend a week just going through story after story illustrating how immoral any concept of retroactivity in law is at its root. Retroactive law violates the very idea of law and morality. We should be able to retroactively unvote anyone who would dare even suggest it, but can we do that? No. And he says, he says the report didn't even recommend what the government decided to do. Its only, index, it, its only recommendation was to index the minimum wage. And he says, well, that's not so bad. Well, I'm thinking that's the worst of all possible worlds, a permanent, never-ending, always-increasing tax. Talk about a far cry from the principles of the Magna Carta that we talked about, Robert, where every tax had a one-year limit and had to be reinstituted through Parliament every budget time. That's how it should be done. And, you know... He says, moreover, thanks to tables and charts provided by the Ontario Ministries of Labour and Finance, the report provides lots of great ammo against the minimum wage. Given the emphasis these days on evidence-based policy, especially among Liberals, I've never heard that, it's passing strange that Ontario's Liberal government chose to disregard so much evidence collected by its own ministries for its own advisory panel, end quote. Well, it's not passing strange that the Liberals have chosen to disregard the evidence. That's what liberals do. That's what people who are looking for something that they don't properly, you know, own. They're looking for something that's not theirs. There's no other rational word for it. They're behaving evilly, and that's all there is. To expect Satan to open the gates of heaven for you is personally what I call passing strange, let's face it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, guaranteed income, guarantees poverty, that's the other thing they want to get into. Everybody have a guaranteed income. And uh, they're t talking about the fairness and efficiency of guaranteed income hinge on its effect on work. No, there's no fairness of any arrangement that violates the principles of consent. All of these editorials, guess who's not mentioned in any of them? None of them. The employer. Like, we don't have employers. They're all talking about jobs and wages, and yet the employer isn't even part of any of their, um, what do you call it, equations? Well, from our perspective, <laughs> he is the victim. Well, he's a victim, but a he's victim, also, yes. if you want jobs, and jobs are relationships, then you need employers. And everything we do in this province is hostile to employers. I know I would have been an, I would have been an employer ten times over, but I got out of it each time. I was I an employer, and it was awful it, 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 dealing with there, the government. There's no way. The government is the biggest boogeyman around there. The government is the biggest thing that stops everything. All meddling with pricing and 
basically just deals that people want to make with each other. That's not even a government function. They're supposed to protect our right to do those things, for heaven's sakes. Not predetermine them. My God, I, I just can't take these guys anymore. They're just pushing me to the edge, Robert. I've just had it with some of these guys. <laughs> but uh, anyways, they're all fake, fake, you know, fake artists and the whole thing. So I think right now I, I, I kind of need a break. Let's turn, uh, turn back to Rocky and Bullwinkle and one of these great fractured fairy tales. This one is King Midas, who is, of course, uh, I guess, gold's fool in this case. We'll be back. Once upon a time, there was a king named Midas. He was a very greedy king indeed. The one thing he loved most in the world was gold. The one thing he had the most of was gold. And the one thing he wanted more of was gold, gold, gold. So he sent his tax collectors into the kingdom to do his gold gathering for him. As the people grew poorer and poorer from being taxed, Midas grew richer and richer. Finally, the people were reduced to living on a diet of turnips. As a result, King Midas began to get the funny feeling that people didn't like him very much. But I need to do something to make people like me, then I can tax them even more. So, the king called a meeting of his advisors, Bobble, Bangle, Bede, and Benson. Gentlemen, I must be made popular. Well, well, sire, I'm just talking off the top of my thatch. What is it, Benson? Well, what about lowering the taxes? We could... That wasn't it, huh? the people again let fly with turnips. By now they didn't just despise the king, they actually hated him. Next day, the king called a meeting of his advisor, Bobble. Well, Bobble, what now? Well, sire, let's just throw this in the moat, see if it floats. What about giving you the golden touch? Isn't that expensive? Well, not if you just use this spray gun and this cheap gold paint. Good thinking, Bobble. The word spread in a flash. King has gold touch. Midas, 24-carat monarch, big free demonstration. People came from all over to watch the king turn things into gold. Hats, canes, bushes, even rocks. That's gold? Looks like gold? Yeah. Feels like gold? Yeah. The king says it's gold? Yeah. It's gold. Hooray, Hooray for King Midas! Well, the king sprayed more and more things until everything in the kingdom looked as if it were made of gold. Midas, of course, was very popular, but since everybody had more make-believe gold than he could use, gold began to lose its value. Soon, it took a wheelbarrow full of gold just to buy one turnip. But back in his castle, the king was very happy indeed. <laughs> Bobble, <laughs> you've done it! The people like me, and I'm still the richest man in the kingdom! Uh, not quite, sire. Huh? The country has gone off the gold standard. What? Well, what is the standard now? Uh, turnips. Turnips? Yes, turnips it was. And of course, everybody had some turnips. Everybody except King Micus. With nothing but gold, he was the poorest man in his own kingdom. You mean I'm broke, Bobble? Looks like, sire. So the next day, the king called a meeting of his advisors. And, of course, nobody was there but him. Today, King Midas lives in a very modest castle on a little side street. He still has lots and lots of friends. And, of course, he <laughs> still has the golden touch. 
<laughs> just can't get rid of those guys, I guess. They're always around. Midas was a bit, t- bit touched, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least that king doesn't have his hands in the treasury anymore. Just got a call during the break there from one of our listeners who pointed out that he doesn't think the government wants to even fix anything because if they fix anything, you know, or if they do anything right, then they won't have any problems for us to fix kind of thing. They'd <laughs> be putting themselves out of a job. Right. <laughs> uh, that might be one way of looking at it. But uh, interestingly, you know, minimum wages, let's be clear here, they were meant to hurt the people that they hurt. They weren't meant, you know, minimum wage legislation. Minimum wages were meant to hurt the economy. They were meant to destroy jobs. Unions, that's what they want. That's what the point of the whole effort is. It is not just an unintended consequence of minimum wage legislation, but the intended consequence. They're not failing at their objectives. They are succeeding. And quite frankly, I think our politicians, our union leaders, in light of the clear evidence, they're really, as I told Andy Utman the other day, I said they're beneath our contempt when they so knowingly refute what they know to be the opposite way. Even the last time the the, the, uh, minimum wage was raised in 2010, the liberal government of the time knew in advance with its own studies that Ontario would lose 20,000 minimal jobs at least if they brought that in. They went ahead and did it and they got what they wanted and everybody said, well, what's going wrong? How come we're losing all these jobs? Aren't you guys doing... Yeah, you're doing exactly what you you plan to do. You plan to lose 20,000 jobs. You know, they don't care about anyone's well-being or prosperity. None of them respect life, liberty, or property or choice. They certainly don't talk about it. They don't talk about choice in health care, no choice in electricity, no choice in education, no choice in auto insurance, no choice in postal service, no choice in cable service, no choice in any so-called service that's regulated or monopolized by politicians abusing government. And by no choice, I mean a conscious prohibition of other existing choices that would otherwise be available to us. And, you know, and they keep wanting us to beat our heads against the wall. Randy Hillier, again today, get, you know, sets up this lobby, though, so that, so that everybody can lobby the government about electricity, sets up a website. We can all write to the Premier, the Energy Minister, to Hydro One, and the Ontario Energy Board, like right into Satan, to ask Satan to quit sinning. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what the PCs do. They offer people false hope. They say, oh, here, write a letter to your MPP. Your M- you know, he's going to do something. No, he's not. He's the guy that's killing you. Quit writing to him. Write to the guy who's going to shoot back at him. That's the guy you got to write to. Government's not the problem. The fools who refuse to govern are, are the problem. And those are our de- Democratic representatives. Finally, just a few hu- humorous things. How, how's our time doing? Are we, are we doing okay? Um, just thinking here, minimum wagers by Steve Murray, National Post. He said, maybe instead of a minimum wage, we should do this. Have a maximum wage. Why should we be debating instituting a minimum wage for so many people when we can just institute a maximum wage for the rest? So instead of a minimum wage of $11 an hour, we could have a maximum wage of $400 an hour. Once you reach it, then they can only redistribute the excess money to the people with the lowest wages in the company. Good idea? No. No? <laughs> for the same reason. It's the same thing. <laughs> but remember, this guy's making fun of this. Here's another yes. one. He says, a bit of theft. Instead of a minimum wage, we should just allow a minimal level of theft for each employee disgruntled over their low pay, an employee should be able to steal the equivalent of, say, $500 from a company in a fiscal year. Anything beyond that would be punishable by the law or docked pay. <laughs> Tips. Bartenders and waiting staff have a lower minimum wage because of tipping. 
The only people excused from tipping will be those making minimum wage. They will wear mandated buttons that say certified minimum so people know their fellow minimumers. (laughs) Or you could have a wage buddy. Create a provincial buddy system where everybody is randomly paired up with someone in their general location. Their respective wage rates will affect the other person's wages, resulting in more money for the poorer of the pair and less for the wealthier. The person losing money will totally be on the other person to get a raise or lobby the company to raise their minimum like a life coach who makes money. (laughs) Now, how stupid are these things? The whole point of these jokes are that they're absolutely just the same as minimum wage. There's no difference. Yes. Absolutely <laughs> the same. So I'll remember all those politicians and, and unionists who promised their foolish gold. They're all a lion. <laughs> That's all I've got to say for this week. So we're going to leave for another week, and we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Hey Bert! Oh Bert! What? Got a minute? Oh Ernie, what is it? Look here Bert, I have two pieces of apple pie Bert, would you like a piece of apple pie? Oh boy, would I? Yes, yes please Mm. Oh okay, uh, let's see Let me just um, Mm -mm. Look at these for a minute Uh, Okay, Smell that apple pie Yeah, you you take that piece there Bert And I'll take this piece here Uh, Excuse me, Ernie, uh but, uh, Ernie, you gave me the small piece. Well, well, that's true, Bert. That is the small piece there, and this is the big piece, and I gave you that piece, and I think I'll keep the big piece myself. Ernie, that is not very polite. Well, well how do you mean, Bert? Well, I mean, uh, if I had two pieces of pie, mm-hmm. I'd offer you the big piece and take the small one for myself. Well, well Bert, mm? you have the small piece, Bert. <laughs>